friends, welcome to the Christ Community Church Brawley podcast. We're so grateful that you decided to take some time to join us today. Hopefully the following minutes and segments are helpful to you. It encourages you to think biblically about the world around you, what you're going through, as well as hear praise reports about what God is doing through Christ Community Brawley and a number of other fun things. And so my name is Sean Arviso. I get to be your host today. And I'm Caleb DeBranch, and I get to be the co-host. And so we are excited to dive into our questions of the month. Yes. So you can submit your questions to us via social media, or if you are watching this on YouTube, you can comment in this section below, and we will do our best to get back to your questions in the next month. So the first question of the month, Sean, is a fun question, and it's if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? So to live anywhere in the world, that's kind of a big commitment. That's yeah. some long-term stuff there. But uh, actually, before I even answer, we encourage you, if you're watching on YouTube or your podcast app, or we encourage you to uh, maybe let us know where you would like to live anywhere in the world. And so for us, I don't know about live, but at least maybe to visit. I know Victoria and I would love to visit the East Coast. We'd love to go up and down the East Coast to visit all the different historical sites. I think that would be a lot of fun. And personally, I'd love to visit Japan. I'd love to visit just Asian culture in general. I don't think, or I've never been to any of the Asian countries or anything like that. So I'd love to check that out. But how about you? Where would you like to live? Well, so actually um, one of the places I was thinking, because I was thinking both where would I like to live and where's somewhere I want to visit. And somewhere I want to visit is Nepal, which is in Southeast Asia. But specifically um, that part of Asia, because it's in the mountains and it's like snowy and it's kind Mm. of different than the rest of Asia. And it's just like, it looks in the pictures I've seen, it looks beautiful. But somewhere I've actually been before that I've always thought since I was young, this would be an amazing place to live is Lake Tahoe. Okay. So it's in way up north in California. And it's just beautiful when you're there in the winter time and it's snowing and the lake has ice over it and just the whole atmosphere. And I love snowboarding. So for mm. me, that would be like a dream come true to get to live right there on the mountain. And then in the summertime, when all the snow melts away, it's just a beautiful, lush forest. The lake is obviously not frozen anymore, mm. and you're able to do lake sports and stuff like that. So, that it's would be. been said that California is the two-hour state. In two hours, you can make it to the beach and go surfing. Two hours from there, you can go to the mountains and go snowboarding. Two hours from there, you can be in the desert and do some off-roading. California's got its own issues, right? <laughs> For a number of other reasons. But geographically and climately, yes, there it's you probably go. the best. Absolutely. And so we'd love to hear where you would like to live or visit. And we have a, a more heavier question, of also a fun one. And so the next question is, what is your favorite attribute of God yes. and why? And so this is a very broad question. Mm-hmm. And of course, I mean, you can spend entire lifetimes on some of the Absolutely. answers that we'll give today. But for me personally... One of my favorite attributes of God is his immutability. And essentially, when we say God is immutable, what we are meaning is that God does not change. And that that idea is found directly in Scripture. For example, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, God says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. And then he goes on to say, Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not destroyed. And you see both the the result of the fact that God doesn't change is that his people are not destroyed, not because mm-hmm. they don't deserve it, not because they, they don't change, because we do. We as God's people, we're sinful, and we change yeah. all the time. We're constantly changing our minds. We're changing our attitudes, and sometimes not for the better, hopefully for the better, yes. but sometimes not the case. But God says, because I don't change, that's why you, O sons of Jacob, are not destroyed. And just God's immutability in general, the fact that our God does not change, that his nature does not change, Mm because all of our hope, 
all of our blessings are found in who he is. Mm-hmm. Of course, what he's done for us, namely in providing salvation, but in who he is in his character. Mm-hmm. And so to know that his character doesn't change, that he doesn't change his mind about you from one day to the next is a firm foundation. And yeah. that for me, it brings so much comfort. And I think it brings comfort to all Christians to know that we have a God who does not change because all the other so-called gods of the mm-hmm. other religions, they're constantly changing and they're, they're never satisfied. But our God, he, he's, he doesn't change. Yeah. He is who he is. He says, Jesus in Hebrews, it says it's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Amen. And so that's my favorite attribute of God. But what about you, Sean? That's awesome. The immutability, absolutely. And so this whole topic is under the umbrella of what's called theology proper, which essentially is asking the question, who is God? And some people have broken it down that God's nature or his essence can be divided between his attributes and his characteristics. So his attributes would be who he is in and of himself apart from creation, and his characteristics are who he is in relationship to his creation and slightly under the umbrella of theology proper which is a really big umbrella you have of course paterology which is the study of god the father christology study of god the son and pneumatology study of god the spirit all very important and of course you have your doctrine of the trinity three and one and so there's a lot to discuss uh, in this topic And I think that if I were to choose one attribute or one aspect of who God is, it would probably be the holiness of God. And if you guys have never heard of a book called The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, I just want to encourage you, it's a small book, but it's one of those things that are profoundly simple in its writing, but it is simply profound in its content. And there's a chapter on the holiness of God. So The Knowledge of the Holy by Tozer, it basically goes, uh, it touches on these different attributes and characteristics of God. What is his nature like? Who is he in his essence? And in the chapter on the holiness of God, I just want to read a paragraph uh, from the book out of page 104, and Tozer says this, I love this. He says, God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire God's wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. You know, it's been said that it's not just that we outside of Christ were in sin, but it has been pictured that we were like a fish in an ocean. All we knew was sin. We didn't know what water being wet to us was like. That's just all we've ever known. And and Paul says in Ephesians 2, not just that you were in darkness, Paul says you were darkness. And so just this whole concept of the holiness of God is not just what we know infinitely bettered, it is totally incomprehensible. And then God tells us, uh, actually Peter quoting out of the book of Leviticus, he tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, God says, uh, I am holy and I call you to be holy. You, you be holy as I am holy. And so just that, that call of God to, and what is holiness at its simplest 
definition, it means to be set apart. And it's, it has this idea of you're cutting something, and when you cut something, you then separate it from something else. And of course, we're called in holiness to be separate from worldliness, separate from sin, to be sanctified. That's where we get that word sanctified, to set apart. So anyways, the holiness of God has a tremendous amount of theological implication and a ton of practical uh, application as well. Yeah, and when you were mentioning just now how holiness is cutting and, and separating, I actually remember uh, the image that always comes to my mind when I think of that is Paul Washer was one time making the analogy. It's like when he watches his wife cook mm-hmm. and she's cutting a carrot and she's cutting, cutting, and then separating, mm-hmm. cutting, cutting, and then separating. And it's yeah. the same thing with how God sanctifies us. He cuts these things away and separates it. It's separating ourselves from the thing God hates in order to be separated unto God. Absolutely. So. Good stuff. Yes. So next we are entering into a new segment called What Do You Think? So in this segment, we're going to look at quotes from Christians throughout history, just deep quotes that they have said and kind of just bounce some ideas and thoughts that we have on these quotes. And so a book that I just recently finished called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And for those of you who don't know, C.S. Lewis is a profound Christian writer. He's the one who made the Chronicles of Narnia, but also many other just um, deep Christian philosophical books. And his most famous work, apart from Narnia, is probably mere Christianity. Mm -hmm. And in it, there's this famous quote by him, and I'll read it, and we'll just bounce some ideas around. He says this, because C.S. Lewis, by the way, was a atheist before he came to Christ. And so he said this in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Sean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and so mere Christianity, if I remember you had uh, approached me and asked, you know, where to start with on C.S. Lewis's books, and the first one that popped in my mind was Mere Christianity. I mean, everybody, every Christian in particular, definitely needs to read this. He was a great thinker, and actually, fun fact, a friend of J.R.L. Tolkien, who is the uh, originator of Lord of the Rings. And so, uh, originator of Narnia and Lord of the Rings were actually friends during World War II. Could you imagine sitting down and did a dinner oh with those Oh my gosh, <laughs> that'd be so fun. And just the the minds that they had, the creativity. But anyways, yeah, definitely would be a fun conversation, or at least to be a fly on the wall to hear those conversations. And so this quote from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, which everybody should read, it really touches on a couple of big ideas. Number one is the moral law argument for the existence of God. That's number one. Number two, it touches on the problem of evil. And so just a couple of thoughts that come to mind, at least for me, with regard to the moral law argument, there's dozens and dozens of arguments for the existence of God, and one of them being the moral law argument, which is a syllogism. And a syllogism, if you're not aware, is basically two premises that leads to a conclusion. And so the two premises that leads to the conclusion for the moral law argument, number one, is that if God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. Premise number two is that objective moral values do exist, which then brings us to the conclusion of the syllogism. Number three, therefore God exists exists, right? Moral law exists in the universe. Every culture, every people of every time period, wherever you go, has this idea of right and wrong. And now their right and wrong perspective could be skewed due to culture or whatever, but in every people group of every time period of every culture, they have this concept of right and wrong, which then goes back to C.S. Lewis's quote, 
how could I even call the universe or call anything cruel and unjust? Where did I get this idea of cruel and unjust? And then he goes on to say, a man cannot call a line crooked unless he has a concept of a straight line. So the whole idea is that the problem of evil really is an argument for God's existence. The reality of evil is an argument for God's existence, not against. And just one final uh, comment is, I know that the problem of evil in that topic uh, is not so much an intellectual issue for people. Many times it's a personal, emotional issue for people because they're thinking about all the traumatic things that happened to them personally, all of the tragedies that they see in the world around them. How could God be good and how could God be just if he allows all of this evil to continue? And that, of course, opens up a big can of worms. But the bottom line is that the reality of evil leads to God's existence, not against it. Yes, and um, I think it's so important that we as Christians know how to answer this question because it's most it's probably the most common question that either atheists will pose as a, like a gotcha kind of question mm-hmm. or just truly people that have, like you said, suffered and really want to, they're not believers, but they truly want to understand, okay, if what you're saying is true, if God really does exist, then really why is there all this evil? So you kind of have both, like I said, you have the atheists who pose it as like a gotcha, mm-hmm. and then you have those who are truly wondering, and we need to know how to respond to them. But I think instead of trying to give a, a reason for why every Every single event that ever has happened has happened. Instead, we just need to point to the ground that they're standing on and say, look, it, it, apart from God, you really have no basis to call anything evil. Mm-hmm. Like like C.S. Lewis said, like, where do you get that from? Where do you get your idea of evil? It's because you have some idea of what good is. Mm-hmm. And in order to know what is good, like, it, is that just your opinion? You're just coming up with that? You're just pulling that out of thin air? Because mm-hmm. What, why would anybody need to obey your thoughts that you think that this is good and therefore that's how everyone should be? Mm-hmm. But instead we look and say, no, it's because God said that this is how it's supposed to be. And so rather than, like I said, try to address every situation, we just need to show them that the ground that they're standing on is inconsistent because a consistent worldview. So like a militant atheist like Richard Dawkins, he said this, he says in Rivers Out of Eden, he says, there is no good. There is no evil. There is only blind and pitiless indifference. And that's a consistent atheistic worldview. That's that's what that leads to. If mm-hmm. you truly believe atheism, that's what it leads to. There is no good or mm-hmm. evil because we're all just matter in motion. Mm-hmm. We're just bags of stuff. And what does it matter if one bag of s- protoplasms does something to mm-hmm. another bag of protoplasms? And so, but the thing is, they don't live that way. Like mm-hmm. he says there's no good and evil, but then when a guy steals his car radio, he's yelling out for justice, mm-hmm. right? Because that worldview can't really hold up. Yes. And so in order to have an idea of what is evil, you have to know what is good. And mm-hmm. then that, like you said, leads to the universal laws of morality. That mm-hmm. where does that come from? And it has to come from outside of the universe. And on that topic, people who are against the moral law argument are usually relativists who would say your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. And, you know, the bottom line is that they would say truth is not knowable and or or doesn't exist even to which then our simple response to refute that because it's a self-defeating statement. If someone says truth is not or how can you know that truth is true? Uh, or truth is not true, you just ask them, is that a true statement? And if they say no, well, then why did you say it? And if they say yes, well, then truth is absolute and knowable. And so even relativism is a self-defeating worldview because truth is absolute, truth is knowable, 
moral laws do exist, mm -hmm. and this all leads to a creator. And we're not talking about specific revelation of the Bible, but this is general revelation or general truth that leads us at least to theism. And there's plenty of arguments that then would lead us from theism to the Christian God of the Bible, Yahweh, right? The one true, the one true God, yeah. And so, um, and this would be, this now all falls under the, the what's called classical apologetics. So classical apologetics is basically establishing that number one, truth is absolute and noble. Number two, formulating arguments that God does exist. Number three, that the Bible is true and reliable and miracles are possible. Number four, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life according to the scriptures, according to a number of other arguments. And so you can logically walk somebody who's an absolute nihilistic atheist, you can logically walk them through the evidence that then would lead to the cross and an open, empty tomb. Uh, so I, I share all of that kind of framework because uh, there are answers to your questions, and God does not, uh, he isn't afraid of your doubts, and doubts are like when you're walking on a road and you're now at a fork in the road, and your doubts can either lead you left to walk away from the Lord and his church and the word and to not pursue truth, or your doubts can lead you right and to where you're now asking questions, you're uncovering evidence, you're discovering the truth, and in fact, it strengthens your walk with the Lord as opposed to leading you away from the Lord. So uh, don't be afraid of your doubts. And if you have questions, we'd love to uh, answer those questions with you. And if we don't know, we'll be honest with you and say, you know what, we don't really know that, but we'd love to discover the truth with you. And we'd love to walk with you in that question. And so uh, moving forward, now we want to ask the question, what are you learning? And so the reason we have this segment is because we should always be learning, always be growing as Christians. And so, Mr. Caleb, what are you learning? Yeah, so uh, me and Pastor Cameron Colas at the Christ Me Church in El Centro thought it would be fun to go through Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology textbook. That's a twisted view of fun. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just for a good time. It's a textbook about this thick, and so yep. we just thought that would be a fun experiment. What but, a um, hoot. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, yeah, so we recently started that, and so we've just gone through chapter one so far. So the plan is to meet every week and just we'll read the chapter on our own, get together and kind of discuss it, and there's um, discussion questions at the end of each chapter. Chapter. And um, yeah, if you are interested in expanding your theology, I, I would recommend it. I think so far it's been very good. And, and I was very surprised by some of the things I learned. For example, um, systematic theology, essentially, it's just a it's a study that answers the question of what does the whole Bible teach us today mm -hmm. about any given topic. And what I didn't realize is we actually do systematic theology all the time without mm -hmm. even really realizing it. So, for example, when someone comes to you and says, Hey, Pastor Sean, what does the Bible say about prayer? Mm -hmm. And you give them a summary of what the Bible says about prayer. You're doing systematic theology. Mm -hmm. you're, you're summarizing what the whole Bible has to say about prayer in a, in a short phrase. And so, and then it's, you know, and what does that mean for us today? How mm -hmm. does that apply to us today? So it, it involves collecting and understanding all the relevant passages regarding a certain topic and then summarizing their teachings clearly so that we know what to believe about each topic. And mm -hmm. so it's just taking the whole of what Scripture has to say about something, summarizing it, and being able to deliver it to someone in a clear and concise way. And I think that's so practical. It's so good. Yeah. And like I said, I was surprised to know. I was like, oh, like we do that all the time without yeah. even really realizing we're doing something called systematic theology. Mm -hmm. We just do that. You know, what does the Bible say about end times? And you try and give a summary of what it says. You're doing systematic theology. Yeah. Yeah. And systematic theology is 
is definitely important. You know, when you look at the Bible, 66 books, 31,000 verses, it can seem quite overwhelming, especially if you're new uh, to the Bible or you're just early in your uh, relationship with the Lord, you're just a brand new Christian, you're just kind of, I mean, you barely know where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are and where John 3.16 is and that kind of stuff. And so having a grasp of systematic theology gives you at least a framework Mm -hmm to work with, right? And so it's definitely important. I will give a quick disclaimer uh, that sometimes certain people will view systematic theology as this is the way, Mm -hmm. and uh, this is how God operates. And sometimes people can get so fixated on a particular system Mm -hmm. that now unintentionally they are putting God in a box, that God only works this way, and, uh, and so just to be careful, because God is God, and He does what He wants. Of course, He operates within the parameters of Scripture, absolutely, but uh, remember, Scripture is the authority, and we have to remember that all other books, they can be good and resourceful, but the Bible is the authority. The Bible is number one, and, and I always go back to that Charles Spurgeon quote about visit many good books, but live in the Bible. So sometimes certain Christians can get uh, can become pharisaical in the sense of they focus more on their traditions, mm-hmm. focus more on what the fellow rabbis and teachers say, as opposed to focusing on what the Bible itself yeah. said. So, yeah, and so yeah, of course we can take things too far and mm-hmm. and turn it into something that's not meant to be. But um, something uh, again, another thing that I was surprised by about it is, for example, the doctrine of the Trinity, right? Mm-hmm. That people sometimes say as an argument against it, like the Bible never uses the word Trinity. Mm-hmm. Like you'll never find Trinity in the Bible. And it's like, well, yeah, the word isn't there, but by using systematic theology, that's mm-hmm. how we can come to the conclusion that God is triune, for yeah. example. And so it can be used for many great things like the doctrine of the Trinity, which is something that we praise and we it's one of God's greatest attributes. And then, like you said, it can also be used to do harm. And so yeah. just being careful. And that would bring up kind of the distinction, at least what I like to call what is scriptural versus what is biblical. And so what is scriptural is what is literally written in the scriptural texts. And you're right. The word Trinity is not scriptural, but it is absolutely biblical. Because when you take all of the scriptural data, you are then led to this biblical concept. And so anyways, little fun fact there. What about you? What have you been learning, Pastor Sean? And so um, we're now about the time that this gets posted around mid-December or so. We, or I am now finishing up my first semester of my uh, master's program. And so just finished up the lectures for my Old Testament survey course and just so rich. I mean, just so good getting kind of an overview of the first 39 books of the Bible, not from a scriptural perspective, like going verse by verse, but getting an overview as far as the uh, the prophetic overtones, the all the archaeology uh, work that's been done to uh, give evidence to all of the records that we see within the Old Testament, uh, all of the extra-biblical data uh, that's outside of the Bible that you could look at tons and tons of sources outside of the Old Testament that gives more color and strength to the Old Testament. Uh, And what I mean by that is that even if we didn't have the Old Testament records of these events, we could still construct a lot of uh, what the Old Testament talks about just from outside sources. And of course, even more so could be done with the New Testament. But anyways, was just so good. And uh, so that's what I've been learning uh, recently. And yeah, been really excited about that. And now moving into praise reports, we always want to 
focus on what God is doing. God is always up to something, right? Always up to something behind the scenes. And so, Mr. Caleb, what are some praise reports? Yeah, so something I'm really excited to report on is uh, in the midst of, unfortunately, Proposition 1 got passed. And um, so that means that now abortion is part of the California constitutional right. And so that was definitely a sad moment for all of us. And um, but praise God that, you know, we're still here. We're still fighting. And so part of that is something I would like to announce and praise God for is January 14th here at the Christ Community Church in Raleigh. We were able to get Alan Schleeman with Stand to Reason to come down Mm -hmm. and do a pro-life conference on basically equipping the saints on how to stand up for the life of unborn children, Mm -hmm. which even though Proposition 1 got passed, like the fight's not over. That doesn't mean there's nothing we can do. Like we can still fight. We're still called to fight. And so we are putting on this conference in order to equip you guys Mm -hmm. and to equip the saints to be able to defend the lives of unborn children. Because now um, that it's a constitutional right, unfortunately, that means politically speaking or with law, it's going to be much, much harder to fight it in that way. So we need to just be on the ground in the streets fighting it out, you know, Mm -hmm. going to the Planned Parenthoods, being able to defend why we believe what we believe and being able to offer alternatives to mothers who are contemplating abortion. And so that's hopefully all going to be covered in this pro-life conference. And again, that's January 14th. That's a Saturday. So if you're not working, we encourage you to please come on out and be there for that. And the conference is totally free. And let me just tell you, this is going to be a high quality, high octane event. You're not going to want to miss it. And so, yeah, really, really excited about our pro-life conference here January 14th. Uh, as far as me, just a few things would love to just give God glory about. Praise report is obviously we are wrapping up Thanksgiving and all of that. And so on November 20th was kind of a big day for us here at uh, Christ Community Brawley. Obviously, we had service at 10 a.m. And then right after service, we gave away 100 Thanksgiving meals. So it was 100 turkeys, box full stuffing. Full on yeah. turkeys. Yeah, full full on meal. And so 100 turkeys, box stuffing, mashed potatoes, uh, green bean, corn, and pumpkins. We were able to get more pumpkins. So we have a great relationship with Walmart here in Brawley. And uh, they're always giving away free stuff for us to give to the community. And then later that evening, we had our church Thanksgiving potluck. So there was about 100 people who came out. And we had just one big uh, potluck. And Caleb was able to lead a discussion with all the different tables of just what are you thankful for? Because again, we always want to just pause and just give God glory. And we know that according to the scriptures, right, scriptural evidence, that it is God's will for us to be thankful in all seasons. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you to be thankful. So it's important for us to exercise attitudes of gratitude. And then also we just wrapped up the Operation Christmas Child National Collection Week, where in our county, actually in, uh, I believe, 4,500 drop-off locations around the United States, the National Collection Week was November 14th through the 21st. And for our county, Praise God that we put together 1,143 shoeboxes that are now going to go around the world this Christmas to impact 1,143 kids. Most importantly, not just a physical gift, which they may not have gotten otherwise, but much more importantly than that, infinitely more important, 100, or 1,143 kids are now going to receive the gift of the gospel message, and then their families will get impacted, and local churches and local pastors on the receiving end of this international operation are now going to do the evangelism, discipleship, follow-up, the ministering to these families around the world. So praise God. 
uh, for that opportunity to be a part of God's global mission. Absolutely. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us today. If there's anything you want us to cover, topics, segments, questions, whatever it might be, we'd love to answer those questions with you. Or if you just want to give us a shout out, say hi, we'd love that too. And if you didn't know, we have Sunday service here at 10 a.m., Wednesday night service at 6.30 p.m., something for all ages. We would love to serve you in person and go beyond just the internet medium. And so with that being said, God bless. We love you guys. And Mr. Caleb, what should they do? We'd highly encourage you, please subscribe <laughs> to the channel. Share this with your friends. Get the word out. That way others can enjoy what we've been producing here. And with that, have a great day and God bless you.